Welcome to the Fair Folk Podcast. I'm Danica Boyce. Today's episode is of a special and slightly different flavor than episodes that have come before. This episode is dedicated to the summer solstice. The summer solstice is a time of illumination, of great vision, and of intense light and focus. It's a beautiful time to reflect. It's a time to feel the generous light of the sun, which never turns away from you. I was working on the second episode in the Wells and Springs series, but I felt that it was pertinent to share this episode with you in the meantime. So thank you for your patience, and I hope you enjoy this one, and it gives you a lot of food for thought. It certainly has given me a lot in the process of producing it. I've recorded it a number of times, actually, and didn't feel quite right about putting it out yet. There's a lot of complexity around these issues, and people find them very triggering at times, and I want to be gentle with my listeners, and I want to be careful with my words. If you're listening to the podcast and you're concerned, if you're looking for error, if you're um, finding yourself kind of policing your reactions to things, maybe take a step back, take a breath. I don't intend it to be an attack on anyone or a violent assertion of (laughs) power. I aim to be accessible to people of all political backgrounds despite the fact that my own very strongly color my work. So, I will begin. I've noticed that my mind is clearest when I'm walking, and the kind of ideas that I'm working with on this episode are not so prone to scripting, I find. They're so close to my heart, and I feel very passionate about them. So, um, I'm sitting here in the park where I often walk, looking at robins and red-winged blackbirds and uh, beautiful willow trees and the mountains in the distance. And I'm here to share some thoughts with you that are related to recent world events and the beautiful conversation that's been going on about racism and imbalanced privilege in North America and abroad. So far, I have not explicitly discussed this topic in the podcast, and um, I was actually planning on it. I'd written a lot of notes to explain partly why I haven't used the word whiteness in the podcast so far, or at least to my memory. And then George Floyd was murdered, and the conversation became much more urgent and um, focused on the voices of black folks, which is fantastic. And um, it seemed like it would be kind of an absurd proposition to start talking about not using the word whiteness when many people had just sort of come across it, um, it appeared. So this is a concept that for me feels old as time. Um, I did my undergrad in English. Um, I did a lot of study in oppression and disadvantage, um, misogyny in literature, but also ideas of philosophy of science and um, other sorts of philosophy related to environmentalism. And then later I did a master's degree in the folklore of the 
English Middle Ages that accused Jewish people of ritual child murder. And that's what I wrote my master's thesis on. And uh, I've been thinking for a very long time about privilege and how it becomes unbalanced and how that unbalance is perpetuated. After I did a master's degree, I uh, did a teaching degree, a degree in education, and I specialized in indigenous education. And that was one of the most fascinating things I've studied and um, one of the most valuable things I discovered in studying the history of indigenous education in North America. That is both how indigenous peoples educated their own communities and also how they've been traumatized in the school system, the Western school system that was imposed on them here. And I won't go into the vast abuses that took place there and still do, but um, I will say that for me it was extremely valuable to discover much of the learning that we experience in our lives does not come through direct instruction. Most of it is experienced-based, and most of it comes from um, inspiration and profound spiritual or physical or emotional experiences, and through story. I also learned um, how to discuss issues of imbalanced privilege in the classroom, and I was called upon in my career as a teacher, which I've left behind now, to teach students who were unaware of oppression and of the class dynamics innate in colonization, which is what the Canadian nation is founded upon. Um, there were people in the classroom who were unaware of these things and who, as we have been pointing out in public culture recently, benefit from it materially. I discovered that um, if you are not careful to present information in a way that's not accusatory, that's not triggering, that's not um, activating for people, then they don't learn. <laughs> and so this goes both ways, of course, for settlers who are in the classroom, you know, young men and women who grew up in Canada and who um, live in mostly segregated cultures and maybe their parents work in resource extraction and for indigenous children as well and people who don't identify on either of those categories the classroom so <laughs> I, don't, I actually don't really support the classroom learning in general but I learned that in order for us to understand things and to benefit from them and to heal, because I think learning is very closely related to healing. We need to feel incredibly safe and supported and not triggered. So, taking all of that into account, I'm deeply invested in anti-oppression work, which is one of the reasons I stopped teaching, because I feel that the school system in Canada, as it is at this moment, um, does not serve students, it was a bit heartbreaking to be involved in just the general, you know, day-to-day -day classroom environment, for me anyway. And I was deeply traumatized by schooling as well, as someone who learned in non-normative ways, and who thinks in non-linear fashion, and when I'm called upon with pressure to produce a certain result or to behave in a certain way, I often find myself unable to do so. And I see that that's common with people who have trauma of any kind in 
all of the cultures of the world. So when I left teaching <laughs> with my medieval studies degree and my background in environmentalism and anti anti-racism work through medieval history and English, etc. I wanted to provide a service to people where they can, a place, a space, this podcast, where people can learn and equip themselves in spaces that are calm and gentle and non-accusatory and um, peaceful and um, to return to the original statement that I was making, I think that the word whiteness and discussions of white privilege and white fragility are incredibly important. These are incredibly important terms and these discussions are very important. Um, and they don't necessarily have to happen in my podcast, I believe. Um, obviously I consider and reconsider this idea all of the time. I identify as you know, left-wing and progressive, um, I'm a feminist and an anti-racist and all these labels that, um, you know, are meaningful to me when I'm voting or when I'm having conversations with friends or people that I've met recently. But I, in making this podcast, um, made a conscious decision against all of my previous decisions in my life to vocalize my beliefs, to um, leave the explicit political content out of it to some degree. Obviously much of it is implicit, but I'm aware that people who listen to my podcast may and very likely do have different political opinions than I do. And I want to be absolutely clear that those people are perfectly welcome in this space and that um, any healing or learning that I can offer to them is freely offered um, because I know that conversation is shut down when um, we cannot allow people who are willing to complicate the conversation into the space of conversation. As many of you are very aware, we are in an extremely polarized political situation. And I want to do my best to, to not further polarize it. And I know that that leaves me vulnerable to accusations of indifference or silence on issues. But I feel very deeply that the work that this podcast is doing is working. And it's working for people from all backgrounds. And I hear that from them sometimes, people who don't share my political beliefs. You know, I might get a message saying, you know, I clearly don't agree with you politically, but I really appreciate what you're saying about you know, healing and treating ourselves gently and um, productive discussion. So thank you for the people who have reached out to say those things to me. And thank you to the people who have reached out to passionately request that I speak on this subject. I see that the podcast is very meaningful to people and um, I want to continue offering it. And I also want to respect my own ability to reflect and find the right words in my own time. There is a huge movement on subjects of privilege right now and it's incredible and beautiful and inspiring and also exhausting. I've held these beliefs for a long time and it is surreal to have those beliefs suddenly answered and sometimes it can be <laughs> like 
frustrating. It's like, you know, um, if you can imagine being sort of like an older sibling, um, just think of yourself when you're a kid and maybe you're an older sibling, maybe you're someone who had a younger friend and you're watching someone learn something that you already have spent a lot of time learning and feel pretty confident at. It's very easy to become impatient with them and to just want them to understand right away without having to tell them how. So <laughs> that's part of the feelings that I've been having too sometimes. It's like it's hard to witness other people uh, suffering and um, going through experiences of sort of contraction emotionally and intellectually so that they can grow. Yeah, I just want to acknowledge that. And I want to acknowledge that a lot of people right now probably need to take a lot of space for themselves emotionally. Um, we've just been under lockdown for three months and now there's a revolution going on. Um, everybody processes things in different ways and especially people who have more sensitive nervous systems at this time may find that they need to take a great deal of time for themselves and they may not feel like it's the time for them to speak and that's fine and that's perfect and really what this podcast is about is complexifying the conversation around how we exist in the world so I want to give everybody permission to complexify your perception just allow yourself to set with how you feel and with your own intuition on these subjects because that is going to steer you right every time and there is enough noise in the world at any time to drown it out. So another topic I'd like to discuss today that is of huge importance to the work that I do is the concept of empire. My podcast, whether you have noticed this or not, is designed to dismantle concepts of empire that we see around us and that we have internalized in our experience of the world, the divine, and time. Empire exists in the last, you know, two or three thousand years in the shape of the Roman Empire and uh, most obviously in the context of pagan history in Christianity. And uh, prior to these larger empires in in Europe, um, in general, most people lived in smaller villages and um, some some in larger centers. But um, the experience of reality was shaped by your local context, um, by creativity, by connection to the land, and um, respectful or not respectful, but interactions with neighboring communities. And sometimes people traveled as well. We're finding that people traveled and migrated in this pre-Christian period a lot more than we previously thought. So paganism in some ways is actually defined by its flexibility and its diversity. And one of the things that has happened since the Roman Empire took hold and the Christian Empire has been taken hold and spread all over the world is that subtlety and diversity are often flattened in service of this meta-narrative served by empire so an overarching story about how meaning is made and one of the biggest tools for keeping empire in power and reinforcing that power is binaristic thinking that is thinking about two things or deciding that two 
features in the world or uh, forces are in opposition. And um, common examples of those would be gender, male and female. Um, Another example is light and dark. A really big example that came into being through Christianity especially was this concept of good and evil. That one has had a huge impact on how we think and it is a recent construct really uh, in the expanse of time. Good and evil is one of the linchpins of Christian thinking and um, personally I reject it but I also reject these other binaristic ways of thinking. Another one that we see a lot of lately is black and white. I mean that in terms of race. Race is also a cultural construct. Um, There's nothing scientifically true about the idea that there are these groups of people that have uniform characteristics and that it determines their value or anything particularly meaningful about them, except for the color of their skin or maybe the shape of their nose. Um, I do not find this a particularly meaningful concept. I understand that it's real in the world, in that it's a political reality. But just to continue on this idea of binaristic thinking, dualism, opposites, when you have these opposites, you may have noticed in our culture and in the world that, and this may be the force of empire that's intending to do this, and maybe that's why they choose to simplify things into these opposite categories, is because one thing becomes prioritized over the other. And the let's say the thing that's preferred then um, begins to define uh, the other thing that's considered its opposite as you know deeply bad and evil and this is totally not reality this is not actually how things are um, and it's not how people always thought Um, I know it's very easy to naturalize these concepts to say like oh, like men have always dominated women and like white folks have always been like warlike and etc, etc, etc. You know, pink and blue being associated with boys and girls is like a terrible example. But, you know, in the Victorian era, not that long ago at all, um, you know, boys were connected to the color pink. And so empire that is a force that tries to homogenize large populations under its power relies on these narratives of opposition and of light and dark good and bad etc in order to reinforce its own power because the story of empire is if you're not with us you're against us and you may notice in your life where this narrative comes out we've all internalized the power structures and hierarchies of empire and they are harmful to all of us what my podcast intends to do is to heal these displacements what i mean is we are always somewhere we're always somewhere on a spectrum of experience and of meaning we belong where we are. We do not need to be reduced to a thing or its opposite to be meaningful. And one of the biggest injuries that happened um, with the imperialization of the modern world is the disconnection of people from place. And I mean that both in these mass migrations to North America from Europe, but also 
of course, the displacement of indigenous people in North America from the places where they lived. If you're not familiar with Canadian and, and American history, um, in Canada, people were moved onto reservations, forced and um, genocide was enacted and continues to be enacted politically. So um, another major displacement was the the transportation of slaves from their indigenous lands as well into North America and elsewhere. So this is the literal meaning of displacement. People have become disconnected from place and that is when it's forced or when it's under traumatic circumstances. So Another example is European migration to North America. You know, the Irish potato famine is a deeply traumatic event in history. Um, there are many reasons that people moved, but there's this literal movement. And then there's also the intellectual displacement. So we have become convinced that humans are opposite from nature and that we use nature for our purposes. So nature has become objectified. In fact, this whole process of opposites, um, when it makes this hierarchical, one thing is better than the other structure, it objectifies the other. That means it makes it into a non-important factor. <laughs> it means it means that you can take that thing and use it for yourself without considering its innate value, divinity, or subjectivity. So humans, this is partly due to the scientific revolution, um, but also previous to that, again, this, this Christian worldview of having dominion over the earth. If you've read the Bible, you'll notice that there are actually very few references to the innate value or um, experience of animals, and plants, stones, other things that the animistic worldview, which is what uh, pagan cultures had and still do have indigenous cultures all over the world. Animism believes in the innate life and ethical standing and subjectivity of the non-human. I'd like to add another factor that's really interesting is that the animistic worldview of course then would extend the same dignity to humans who we don't necessarily identify with because of these constructs, constructs of race and different ethnicity. Under this displacement of empire, this hierarchical, binaristic um, structure of dislocation and opposition. The world has become disenchanted. This is a expression that I find really powerful to think about. We at one time, and still do many times um, in different places in the world, we felt that the world was enchanted, you know, that there was innate divinity to all things, that we were divine beings among divine beings everywhere we went. And that worldview has gone out of fashion in public culture, in Western culture, in Christianity, in colonialism, in science, etc. But it is always available to us again when we wish to reignite it. So part of the project of this podcast is to re-enchant the world and to re-enchant history as well. History, of course, um, has been hijacked by the desires of empire to serve its meta-narrative, as we say. I'm using a lot of lingo in this podcast, so bear with me if there's something that um, rings um, sort of... I don't know. I don't much like using a lot of the terminology that I've learned in my 
academic background, not because I think it's wrong, but because I think it's not as relatable as um, other ways of discussing things that can be more inclusive and uh, resonant for folks who don't have a background in higher education or socio-political theory, etc. So forgive me while I go into those terms for the purposes of this episode. And if you have questions, I absolutely welcome them. But to continue, the world can be re-enchanted at any moment and the past can be re-enchanted at any moment. We hear so many stories about how, you know, war is inevitable, that it's the definition of humankind, that um, cultures just naturally dominate one another. There's the whole Lord of the Flies novel, you know, this view of the world that domination is innate to human psychology. It's not true. Um, human psychology is incredibly diverse and the opportunity for various experiences and interpretations always exists. You are a super free, super beautiful, super divine being that has access to incredible creativity and incredible hope and incredible flexibility of mind and spirit. And I really want you to feel empowered to make decisions about how you interpret the past specifically. In my worldview, the past is love. It's the accumulation, it's the culmination of all of the effort and joy that's come before and the suffering that has also caused people to grow and it provides, you know, the compost for the, the fertility of the future. The past is all around us. It has never gone anywhere. It is... It is living in, you know, the dandelion I see in front of me, the, the cottonwood fluff that's floating in the air. Um, the past is the earth. I mean, it's made up of everything that came before. Our ancestors are under the ground and they are literally <laughs> fertilizing the plants that we see and the food that we eat. We are not disconnected from it and it is not remote from us. So I may have gone off on a little bit of a tangent, but... What I really want to bring home is this idea that the past is ours to examine and to reinterpret and to use creatively for good. The dominant story in the last couple of thousand years is one of opposition, one of scarcity. There's the idea that um, if I have something, someone else doesn't have it, or that for me to be resourced, I have to take something from someone else. And the capitalist system really encourages that mindset. It leverages feelings of scarcity and actual scarcity to achieve its ends of perceived abundance. But we can all see that this system is not providing real abundance for people. When we believe in these oppositions, and a very pertinent example right now is the political left and right uh, in public life and civic life, when we believe in these oppositions, we believe that if one succeeds, the other must fail. And this is not true. This is a belief, um, and it's a belief that disservices everybody. We deserve to have everything we need. We deserve to have more than we need. And it is actually physically available on the earth, and it is physically and spiritually available. 
scarcity happens on a material plane and also an ideological and spiritual plane. We cannot always control how much scarcity there is or abundance in our material lives, but we can do our best to honor our own spiritual needs and to believe in the innate abundance of the earth and of our right to spiritual experience and inspiration. That's the kind of space that this podcast aims to provide. I want everybody who listens, regardless of their skin tone or their background, to feel that they deserve to have an abundant spiritual life, to feel that resources are available to them as unbiased as possible, to interpret in their own way, and to use for their own healing. Again, learning and healing to me are very closely connected. And this may be because I had a lot of adverse experiences in the school system, but I don't think this is the case. I think um, because we've been sort of intentionally kept in the dark for a long time in um, this dominant Western culture, and we suddenly have these new resources like in the form of the internet and our communication, we are in a moment of profound healing and learning at the same time. So these concepts feed one another. And um, one of the reasons that I paused before I spoke about concepts of whiteness and privilege is that it's so important to me that this space is safe for people to learn in and to um, free themselves from the domination of these these uh, binaristic ideas of um, you know white privilege, which is basically just the idea that white people or fair-skinned people or European-descended people are better than other people. And it's based on this totally false dichotomy that is extremely harmful um, and diminishing of all people, especially people who are not pale-skinned. What I want to do is make the podcast safe for everyone to heal from oppression and internalized oppression. The confusing and like most sort of difficult to explain part about how empire causes suffering is the fact that empire causes suffering for everybody Um, and the kind of healing and teaching that I feel best equipped to provide is the healing of European descended people who also experience profound displacement and suffering as a result of empire because when we experience uh, domination when we experience polarization we see them as natural and this is why you hear those stories well this is always the way it's been this is just what humans are like because people believe this and they treat themselves the same way they internalize those structures in ways that are personally disempowering and abusive and when we are abusing and disempowering ourselves it is no surprise that when we go out into the world we do the same to other people And when we feel that there is not enough, when we've been taught that there is scarcity and that my flourishing is at your expense, then we are going to go out and we're going to fight over the scraps. And right now, in this world where the news is owned by a few companies that have an investment in making us fight over the scraps, this is something that I think we should be very suspicious of. And that when we feel ourselves in competition with other people, that we sit with that feeling and see if we can extend ourselves some grace. See if we can find the resources to feed ourselves spiritually, emotionally, and physically. 
and to see that feeding ourselves also feeds other people who we may not identify with. It feeds the earth who we may not identify with. And the more that we feed ourselves and see it as connected to the feeding of other people, the more that that becomes easier, the more that we can see ourselves being related to other people, being related to plants, seeing um, love as a primary way of experience in the world, as opposed to competition and lack. to address the term white fragility. White fragility is the term that's applied in the current discourse to the emotional reactions of people perceived as white or who identify as white to information about the oppression of people of color. I want to be very clear when I'm discussing this term, white fragility, to let you know that I'm doing so from the perspective of people experiencing this term and these um, processes as people identified as white folks. So um, I don't want to compare the experience of white people um, being informed of historical wrongs to the people who experienced these historical wrongs. I don't want to imply that white folks are suffering more in finding out about these wrongs, um, but I do want to make it clear that um, I feel this discussion around white fragility and the process of encountering history that implicates one's ancestors or the culture that one lives in and perhaps thrives in is a beautiful opportunity for self-reflection, for extending grace to the self, for recognizing one's own injuries and traumas, and for um, developing a greater sensitivity to the emotional experience of everyone you encounter. I think this is a very powerful term and one that causes people a lot of intensity. And it's very useful to think about. I think that fragility is universal, that vulnerability is what makes us human, what makes us alive, what makes us responsive to the world. So I think white fragility is often lobbed as sort of an insult or an accusation, when really, perhaps, what's activating about it is the reduction of a person's identity to a color and then combining that with um, pointing at someone's vulnerability and injury obviously um, provokes a rather defensive reaction and I want people who identify as white or who the world identifies as white to take these moments of 
reaction as an opportunity. I think your feeling of defensiveness is totally warranted. And please allow me to explain why. White people, by being lumped into a category of whiteness and being told that our culture is uh, all one thing, monolithic, and that most of that one thing is violence, warfare, and domination, um, reasonably feel robbed of a sense of heritage, of complexity, and of spiritual autonomy. So, perhaps in these moments <laughs> where we feel defensive, I mean, I have this experience as well. I don't think it's unique to me at all. Um, when we have these experiences of defensiveness, let us look at what injury is being pointed at. Let's look at the places where we feel like, hey, you know, I'm hurt too. Let's, let's take that as an opportunity to look at that hurt and to heal it. Um, and I don't mean heal it as in correct our assumptions. I think that uh, correction and healing are two very different things. And then right now in sort of the discourse that is going around, they sometimes get confused. Healing is acknowledging where you've been injured, honoring that, accepting its reality, and making space to resource yourself. So some might call this self-parenting. Our culture has taken um, the identity of a huge group of people who happen to have a similar colored skin and diminished it into something meaningless and harmful and self-destructive and destructive of everything else and told us to be proud of it. And that's deeply traumatizing for everyone involved and everything involved. So. I just want to say to you, you know, people who are experiencing backlash against white privilege, wherever you are on that spectrum of identity and however you choose to identify, we are all spiritually underprivileged. And I think that that is part of what flares up in these moments of identification and uh, sometimes finger pointing and sometimes just gentle conversation. The defensiveness that comes up is this feeling, for me at least, it's the feeling that um, you deserve better than this, that you came into this world connected and wanting to live and feel complexity and meaning and beauty and divinity, and that you've been told those things don't exist or that you need to fight over them. And uh, that's all untrue. What I try to do here is give as much information as I can to people to, to broaden the definition of what European culture means, because we get so little good information, and there actually is so much good information. And part of that good information comes from you and your embodied experience on the earth, on the ground, and in your aliveness, <laughs> in your moments touching leaves and listening to birds and uh, meditating and hearing that inner voice that says something that may not conform to the narrative you've been given on any level. There are many levels of narrative being offered to us at any moment, especially in this moment where the news cycle dominates. Please consider that the news cycle may not be the ultimate arbiter of truth or of urgency or of even how time operates. I'm seeing a lot of people feeling like they need to act now. I'm receiving messages saying, I need to act now. And I understand the emotion, I think. I understand the emotion behind those compulsions. 
I also understand time differently than capitalist society in modern North America does. Uh, time is cyclical, it is not linear, and it is accessible um, from other points in time in non-linear ways. There is knowledge available to you from all times, and the way to access it is often actually to slow down and to step out of action for the moment until you are in a state of grace. That state of grace comes after recognizing our sites of injury and of defensiveness and of scarcity. And when we have acknowledged our injury and resourced ourselves, given ourselves what we truly need, not just, you know, a shopping spree or a hot bath with candles, though that really works for me. Um, when we've truly resourced ourselves emotionally and spiritually, then, then we are so powerful to act. Then we are in a state of grace. I, um, I'm using that term because I uh, heard a quote once, and I'm going to misquote it just because it's only in my memory. Leonard Cohen used to say, the Canadian songwriter, that he would not get out of bed in the morning until he was in a state of grace. And I find that really inspiring. I know not everyone can stay in bed until they're in a state of grace, but they may choose to refrain from overt action, for example, until they are in a state of grace. Um, you get to determine what a state of grace feels like for you. And this is actually a really fun experience, identifying the moments in your life where you feel most alive, where you feel most powerful and safe and grounded and inspired. These are anchors. These are places from which you can act with great power and great certainty and great resonance. And this kind of action resonates through time. So I would love to hear what those spaces look like for you. I would just love to encourage you to look for them in your own life and your own experience. We are very powerful beings and we are very powerful beings that exist in a society that does not serve our spiritual needs. We must serve our own spiritual needs and assist one another in doing so. One of the ways we can do that is through generous listening. Listening to ourselves and to others and to the emotional realities behind the words. It's only when we sit with reality in a sympathetic way, in an empathetic way, with the intention to understand that we can move forward with our learning and our healing. I could speak on these subjects for hours, and I have in my personal life, and I may still on the podcast. I want to say that um, I'm becoming really interested in discussions around abundance and scarcity. I think that um, scarcity is rather a weapon, and I would like to disarm it in our lives. I would like to do everything I can to make the people that I know and that I touch um, through this podcast feel resourced in every way possible. I want you to feel free. I want you to feel safe in your bodies and the world. I want you to know the divinity that's in yourself and in the earth and in everyone else that you come into contact with. I want you to feel that you can make choices about how you use the matter of the world and the past in ways that are more nourishing than what has been modeled for you. I want you to know that you can reject the narrative of scarcity and of limitation of resources. I want to convey the idea that there is enough to go around. 
that European folklore in particular is abundant, that history is not lacking, and that nobody can tell you what the correct way to do folklore, paganism, or your life is. And I want to continue thinking about how we can build more abundance into our communities and our lives and our spiritual experience of the world. I want to say what I usually do at the end of the podcast, which is thank you so much to Sylvia Woods, who provides the theme music for the podcast, which you hear at the opening. And thank you so much to all of you for listening. I really hope that you feel empowered by this podcast and by this episode in particular and that you feel um, seen when I speak to you I hope you take good care of yourself right now I hope that you can turn to yourself and trust your intuition to tell you what you most need to know about how to respond in these times and how to treat yourself and others I'm going to leave you with a song sung by Jackie Oates and written by Mike Heron called Sleepers Awake. I believe it's written originally in German in the 16th century, though I could be wrong. It's almost like a hymn to the sun, but it also contains a strong note of personal grace and um, illumination and appreciation of beauty and a feeling of being held by the sun and the earth. I consider it the patron song of this podcast episode. It feels to me like the perfect complement and container for this time of awakening and of illumination. Please enjoy Sleepers Awake by Jackie Oates. Sleepers awaken the night has gone and taken your darkest fears and left you here and the sun it shines so clear and the sun it shines so darkest fears and 
sun it shines so clear Awake for the world looks wonderful You send your beams to earth Giving flowers their And looking to the sky They see your diamond eye sap and cell They love you very well And answering the first light's ring Sleepers awaken The night has gone and taken Your darkest fears And left you here And the sun it shines so clear And the sun